Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Karma Ben-Yohanan about her book titled Jacob's Younger Brother, Christian-Jewish Relations After Vatican II, um, just out in 2022 from Harvard University Press. This book examines contemporary tensions between Jews and Christians that play out beneath the surface of sort of interfaith dialogue. The book is absolutely fascinating. Not only does it investigate kind of what actually happened at Vatican II, why, um, but sort of how that fits into a broader history and contemporary practice of Christian-Jewish relations, um, going right back into history to understand a lot of the origins and kind of developments, but also very much looking at the present and what's happening now within these two particular communities. So there's a lot for people to be interested in with this book and a lot for us to get into. So Karma, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about your book. Yeah, so first of all, thank you very much for inviting me, Miranda. I'm really happy and excited to be here today and and very much looking forward to the conversation. Um, So to tell uh, very briefly about myself, I'm currently teaching at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem's Department for Comparative Religion. Um, And yeah, so how, how should I start? The, the book is, is very much a product, I think, of my own upbringing in, in the Israeli society. And I grew up in a semi-Orthodox home uh, where Christianity symbolized something that was at once very exotic and attractive, but on the other hand, also very dangerous. And I was always somehow very curious about, about it um, from a very young age. Before I understood that part of what's so interesting uh, to me about Christianity has to do with my own Jewish glasses, so to say, um, with with the terms that I come with uh, when encountering the Christian religion. So something about this combination of fascination and and strong rejection, uh, which accompanies the figure or the image of Christianity in parts of the Jewish world, um, is also at the heart of of the book. Um, which focuses on the complicated encounters between um, the Jewish set of projections, so to say, with regards to Christianity, and the Christian set uh, of projections uh, with regards to Judaism. So that, that's how the project uh, started, more or less. I would perhaps, yeah, sorry, can I add one more thing? Please. Yeah, so more concretely, um, I learned about Vatican II uh, really by mistake. I had no idea uh, this is something that in the Israeli society, when I started the project, was was less known than it is today. Um, And I didn't have any idea about the Second Vatican Council um, and also not on Nostra Aetate number four. That's the document document of the Second Vatican Council in which Jews and Judaism are uh, reconsidered. Um, And... What was um, even more of a surprise was was to understand that even though there was this, there is a huge corpus of of Christian literature on Jews and Judaism that is written during Vatican II and also in the 60s, 70s and 80s, so also after, but we know much less on how Jews responded to this Christian initiative. So there is much less academic literature on the Jewish side. So my idea was somehow to, to... establish this mirror image and, and think about the very strong asymmetries also today between the communities in the age of reconciliation. Mm. 
Thank you for explaining um, kind of all of those things that come into this project. I think they really come out in the book. Um, and that idea of kind of the huge body of literature on the Christian side that Jews are actually not particularly aware of um, and sort of vice versa is very much kind of a running theme sort of as you spoke about, right? It's the book focuses on discussions within the two communities kind of about the other, but with, as you said, sort of the particular glasses. Um, so before we kind of get into what's being discussed within the two communities, um, obviously the idea of kind of the Jews is a very broad category. And of course, the Christians or even the Catholics are also ver a very broad category. So can you tell us a bit more about kind of the particular communities that you focus on in the book and why those ones? Yes, with pleasure. Um, so I, I chose two communities which are also, I mean, it would be a generalization to speak even about these smaller communities within the greater scope of Christianity and Judaism, but I did choose to focus on the Roman Catholic community and especially on the theological discourse uh, within the Catholic world and on the other hand on Orthodox Judaism, that is those Jews who see the um, observing the halakha as, uh, as central to their religious identities. Um, yeah, again, th these are each of these communities is, of course, divided into many, many, many sub subgroups. But I still thought that it would be interesting to include a large scope of discussing these specific groups, not because they are very similar to each other or because they are the natural counterparts. Um, in certain senses, they are, they are but in, in other senses, they aren't. Um, the choice was uh, basically a result of, of, of three, uh, three factors. The first was that, of course, these are very influential communities, in the, in, globally speaking, in both the, the larger uh, Christian community and the larger uh, Jewish community. So uh, needless to say that Catholicism is, is very influential today. In, in, in the world, but Orthodox Judaism as well has, has, uh, is influencing also Jewish identity that, uh, Jewish identities that do not necessarily see themselves as Orthodox. So it has an impact also on the larger Jewish community and in the state of Israel specifically, it also has um, a hegemonic uh, position. So first was there uh, positions in the public. This doesn't mean that other communities aren't important, of course. Um, but more, um, so content-wise uh, more, I think that there is a very interesting common denominator between Catholicism and Orthodox Judaism uh, in terms of their relationship with their own traditions. So other Christian or Jewish communities may feel um, more uh, comfortable rejecting certain aspects or certain parts of uh, the, 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 you know, the bulk of the Christian or the Jewish tradition that don't fit very well with modern sensibilities, for example. So they can simply say, okay, this is no longer relevant for us. We can just take it, uh, take it out of the tradition or the way that we practice in our Christianity or our Judaism. But Orthodox Jews, as well as Roman Catholics, have um, some kind of uh, an obligation to the, to the entire scope of the tradition as it evolved uh, through the centuries. So they can't pick and choose, so to say. They have to remain loyal to the entire um, scope of tradition, which means that the, the only resort that they have, if something is really not in line with contemporary moral, ethical, or intellectual sensibilities would be to reinterpret 
these parts of tradition that do not uh, that do not fit very well, but they can't just uh, do away with them. And this was, I think, this is an interesting uh, point uh, from which one can start the the comparison. The third hmm. aspect that um, that stood behind my decision to focus on these specific communities, which is also very important for the the entire structure of the book is that somehow when we think about Jewish-Christian reconciliation after the Holocaust, about Jewish-Christian dialogue, and perhaps the image that pops up in our minds would be this cardinal in a red, red cape and a, and a bearded uh, Orthodox Jew, probably uh, in, in, in black uh, clothing. Um, and, and these are somehow the symbols of a reconciliation probably because they, 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 they symbolize something that has to do with very thick traditional uh, religious identities, um, which probably brings to mind also the, the polemics of the Middle Ages between uh, Jews and, and Catholics. Um, and so this implies also that today in the time of reconciliation, this, this moment in modernity is a time of overcoming the problems that these thick religious identities bring with them to the table. So religious tension belongs to the past, to history, to medieval history, while modernity, the current moment in modernity, means overcoming these tensions and these difficulties. And what the book tries to do uh, is to a certain extent to problematize precisely this image. So it was very good for me to bring these cardinal and rabbi uh, precisely then uh, to the table. Hmm. Lots of very intriguing reasons that sort of set us up for discussing um, the book. And you've sort of implied it already, but is there anything else um, you'd like to explain for why the book focuses on resistance within Christian Jewish dialogue, within the communities, um, given that it is, as you said, sort of thought of as an era of reconciliation? Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us on why you focus on points of resistance? Um, yes. Um, so... When we think about Jewish-Christian dialogue and reconciliation, um, usually these processes are presented as a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift which, which basically through something like two millennia of deep hostility into the thrash heap of history, right? So it's completely different than everything um, we saw before. And I, I don't disagree with that notion. I think in, in certain senses, it is, it is absolutely a new era uh, with, with many achievements. But of course, history doesn't really work this way. Uh, it knows no clear-cut breaks. And the new and the old, uh, old ideas and new ideas are always somehow mixed and intertwined. Uh, sometimes it's very hard to discern which is the... Which, which is new, which is old, especially in, in Jewish-Christian relations, which always, um, um, always work with these ideas of, of old and new. This is always part of the polemic. And um, also reforms, even the best, uh, the best of them, right, the, the best reforms we can think about always involve uh, also extremely high costs. And what may seem like a, a very blessed reform uh, to one may seem very destructive uh, to the other. So, um, and especially when we think about religious traditions, because part of uh, the idea of a religious tradition is precisely not to make 
these kind of breaks, right? To, 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 to preserve, to maintain some kind of a line, a thread um, that moves us from past to present and to, to future. So precisely because I, I take seriously this religious, this institutional religious uh, claim uh, to continuation, I was wondering if one can also think about the costs of Jewish-Christian relations. Was it always good? Was it good to, to everyone? And did everyone simply agree that this hostility is, is really something that should be left in the past and, and overcome it? Or perhaps sometimes this kind of process also endangered certain uh, religious and traditional positions um, so what was exactly at stake and what were the points that were really hard to overcome or perhaps were never um, completely um, overcome within a Jewish-Christian dialogue? That's the, uh, that's the main reason why I chose to focus on the difficulties and not on the achievements, even though I, I do think that there are very significant achievements there. Uh, but checking the limitations was for me a product of taking reconciliation seriously. Hmm, that's a great way to put it. Um, I'd love to get into some of those points of kind of what were the questions, what were the debates. So given that the book's title obviously mentions Vatican II, um, the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, um, can you tell us about what questions about Jews and Judaism were brought into that council and why it was those questions in particular about Jews and Judaism that were debated? Yes, absolutely. So um, I think when, when I read Nostradata number four, it seems to me that um, the document really brings forward more questions than answers, right? It, it, it opens the, the way to rethink about Jews and Judaism, but it is very careful um, not to uh, make very strong statements. At this point, it would have been also uh, very difficult to make because uh, things just just got started, right? In terms of uh, in terms of the whole process, um, and there are uh, there are plenty uh, plenty of, of of new questions that were discussed uh, in the council. And for me, and in the book, the way I try to formulate it is is to to d- divide it uh, also through uh, through time. So there are the questions about the past, the Jewish past of Christianity. So of course, Christianity in a way emerged from a- ancient Judaism, and, and and so a series of questions with regards to the theological implications of the Jewish roots of Christianity uh, began to arise. Um, especially at a time when we think about the Holocaust, the, which was definitely the main reason why the whole question of, of the Christian attitude to Judaism um, began to, uh, to emerge. So during the time of the Holocaust and also before in uh, European um, Christian anti-Semitism, um, the emphasis was very often about the break between the Jewish past and the Christian future. But now, um, after the Holocaust of this whole idea of a past that is no longer relevant um, and the Christian future, it began to be re-examined. So why does it matter that Jesus was Jewish? Why does it matter that the apostles were, uh, were Jewish? These are the sort of questions that begin to emerge with, uh, with Vatican II, even if they're not examined very thoroughly uh, in the uh, declaration uh, itself. 
Um, and here in the sense of the past, it's also interesting to note that theology and biblical scholarship work very closely together in terms of mutual uh, nourishment or already at the time of Vatican II, but definitely after that. I think an even more difficult question was not about the Jewish past of Christianity, which was more or less a consensus, but about the Jewish present. And this was, and I think it also remains, the, uh, the central question in terms of a, a, a Catholic approaches to Jews and Judaism, since in the classical anti-Jewish tradition, um, I don't see the entire, uh, by the way, uh, that's an important note, I don't see the entire attitude of Christianity to Judaism throughout the ages as anti-Jewish, not at all, but in this, uh, in, there is this tradition which is, is very antagonist towards Judaism, um, and there it was very often emphasized that the Jews have lost um, the significance, um, so the significance of Judaism as a covenant, as a covenantal community, was lost um, after the crucifixion and after the rejection um, that the Jews rejected uh, Christ, um, and they are no longer uh, the chosen uh, people. They were replaced by uh, the church, what we now usually call supersessionism. But thinking, um, re renouncing or superseding supersessionism, uh, and this is what, in a way, the council tries uh, to do, um, also required rethinking about the meaning of Jewish history and the meaning of the Jewish present. So when we say that the Jews are not rejected by God, would this mean that they are still the chosen people? What does it mean about their relationship with the church, which is also the chosen people, um, what does this cho choice entail in terms of how, how, in terms of how do we interpret Jewish history? For example, the Holocaust. What is the theological meaning of the Holocaust? What is the theological meaning of the state of Israel, which always accompanies um, and sometimes overshadows the entire discourse and makes things uh, very complicated? So these uh, were and remain very central questions. And the last question was was more about the the um, about eschatology, so um, about the future conversion of the Jews. Is it appropriate to even speak about a future conversion? Should Catholics be active in converting Jews in order to somehow contribute to this uh, uh, to this eschatological future? Yes or no? So these, I would say are uh, central categories through which to look at the uh, at the at the like at the discourse so to say thank you for outlining them for us um that's very helpful to understand kind of what was on the table um because one of the other points that the book brings up is that there are a whole bunch of topics that have been left out of discussions of sort of how do Christ Catholics relate to Jews and vice versa. Um, and I was really interested in kind of what was left out. And also if you could help us understand why some things were left out. So what was not on the table? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tricky question. Um, it, it, it's tricky because I think uh, in the beginning, more questions were uh, on the table than what happened later. So some questions I would say would, were gradually pushed out <laughs> of, the, uh, of the process of Jewish-Christian reconciliation. One of them, for example, is the idea of punishment, right? That, that the, the, the calamities um, in Jewish history and the Holocaust most of all 
was to a certain extent a result of uh, divine punishment uh, for the rejection uh, of, of Christ, not to say for the crucifixion, because of course Nostraitate already um, renounces the idea of the deicide uh, charge. This is one of its main um, achievement, uh, achievements. So, uh, so one thing was the, this question of punishment. And we see in, 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 in earlier thinkers which, who promote Jewish-Christian reconciliation, such as Jacques Maritain, for example, um, so it is clear somehow that the, the, the idea of punishment is already a little bit abhorrent uh, after the Holocaust. It is very hard uh, with the new sensibilities and the rejection of anti-Semitism to maintain this idea that the Jews paid a price in their history for rejecting Christ. But it was actually very hard to completely ignore this idea because this would entail that the Jews simply rejected Christ, but they, they, it had no consequences <laughs> at all for them. And so we see uh, uh, theologians very hesitant during the 60s what exactly to do with this question of the, con- of the consequences of the Jewish rejection uh, of Christianity until the whole, the entire question simply disappears. So nobody um, deals with that anymore. And it has also to do with, a, you know, the, the main parable, the main scriptural parable that is used in Jewish-Christian relations is the parable of the olive tree from uh, Romans uh, 11, uh, where uh, Judaism is seen somehow as the, as the, um, the roots of the olive tree uh, on which the Gentiles are also grafted um, uh, as, as branches. But in Paul's parable, there are also broken branches. branches, um, And these broken branches uh, are often or uh, are intuitively recognized as the Jews who reject Christ until they will be grafted back in in time of conversion. But we see that in the theological discourse, the branches are completely pushed out. So the use of the olive tree, for example, uh, would be really a use that um, emphasizes the uh, the continuation between Judaism and Christianity, that Christianity really, the the Gentiles through Christianity or through Christ are now becoming part of this olive tree. But the the violent um, aspect of this parable, so the idea of breaking something, is completely left out, along with other uh, verses uh, within the Pauline epistles as well. So we see how the discourse chooses to, to go only with the positive parts and to discuss less and less the difficult parts and the space that they um, that, that somehow they, they leave. Um, I would just add two very, very um, short uh, comments also um, to say that um, the land of Israel, for example, is something, is a very complicated uh, topic today between uh, Jews and Christians. And um, I think now it is start. It is starting to be more um, theologized more uh, more often. But for a, a very long time, both the question of the theological meaning of the land of Israel, and the, and of course the theological meaning of the state of Israel, which is even more complicated. Uh, especially Catholics were very reluctant uh, to touch it, while Jews pushed them to touch it very strongly. Well, the Holocaust was exactly the other way around. So 
Catholics were very eager to theologize the Holocaust, but the responses they received from their Jewish counterparts it was, uh, were very, very uh, uh, suspicious. So many Jews did not like at all um, that the Holocaust is inserted into a, some kind of a Christian meta-narrative. And so both these events, which are so central to the question of contemporary uh, Judaism, um, uh, were left out of the, uh, of the official dialogue to a, to a great extent or touched very briefly and diplomatically. Hmm. I think one of the things that was so intriguing about this section of the book is exactly what you said um, of the kind of change over time, that it wasn't like there was sort of one moment of here's the list of okay things, here's the list of things we're not going to talk about. It evolved um, over time from Vatican II onwards. And you talk about in the book how the actions of Pope John Paul II is very much sort of a part of these changes. Um, And also that it can be confusing to look at what he did because in some senses he seems really progressive and in some senses he seems a lot less so. And I was really struck by how you argue in the book that we can better understand his actions by seeing it as sort of two parallel strands, a theological strand and a symbolic strand. Can you sort of take us through that argument and how it helps us make sense of Jewish-Christian um, reconciliation? Yes, gladly. So just like you said, Miranda, um, there, is, there is this very, there is an enigma in terms of John Paul II's attitude to Jews and Judaism because... What we know about John Paul II in general was that he was a very conservative and authoritative pope um, and a very doctrinal one, right? One that was very much eager to um, to maintain the stability of, of Christian doctrine. Um, he's not considered to be, a, um, to, to have a very let's say reform reforming spirit, right? On the other hand, in Jewish Christian dialogue, he is regarded really as as, as an extremely progressive uh, pope, perhaps the most progressive pope in terms of um, in terms of his attitude to Jews and Judaism, uh, in competition only with John the Twenty Third, the the pope that convened the Second Vatican Council. And and I was uh, I was somehow puzzled by this, you know, the double picture that we have of John Paul II and how come. Um, his attitude to Jews and Judaism is an exception um, to everything else we know about this Pope. And so, um, but, but on the other hand, when, when looking into what Catholic theologians did with John Paul II's attitude to Jews and Judaism, it became quite clear to me that there is a huge controversy between conservative Catholic theologians and liberal Catholic theologians in, in terms of how to interpret some of John Paul II's uh, 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 gestures and sayings about Jews and Judaism. For example, for some, it was very clear that uh, the Jews were an exception to the Pope's Christocentrism in terms of he, he didn't think the Jews should be uh, missionized, that they should be uh, targets of Christian mission. Others thought that, of course, there is no exception here, and he did believe that mission um, is appropriate also in the context of Jewish-Christian relations, and um, because otherwise this was undermine this would undermine his entire uh, universal perception um, of of Christ. So how come it, there was no consensus among theologians um, as to the Pope's 
attitude to these specific questions. And then what I, what I found that when, when looking into John Paul II's uh, relationship with Jews, the, the central thing that the Pope does is these unbelievably progressive symbolic gestures completely unprecedented. For example, right, I think the most um, a prominent example is his picture putting this note into the Western Wall, right, which is a very, very Jewish gesture. So we see the Pope doing this very Jewish gesture, um, <clears throat> asking forgiveness, of course, uh, from God uh, for the sins uh, of Christians towards uh, the Jews, and also his visit to the, uh, to the synagogue in the 80s, uh, where he says, you are um, our, uh, our, our dear brothers, um, one may say our older brothers, right? The Fratelli Maggiore is very famous. So if you go to Italy um, and you uh, admit being uh, Jewish, um, you will very easily uh, receive something like, oh, Fratelli Maggiore. So, right, this is something very um, prominent. But what were exactly the theological implications of these statements and gestures, this was not always clear. And what I started to think was that perhaps it was purposely um, left a little bit um, with, a, with a screen smoke somehow covering the um, theological or doctrinal implications of uh, these state statements because it meant that John Paul II can um, somehow refrain from a, a, from a very clear-cut and strong theological statements about um, the meaning of the irrevocability of the covenant of Jews with God, for example, um, about mission, right? So th there are things that he did not interpret, but it allowed him to be incredibly progressive on a non-doctrinal uh, realm. And I think perhaps... In the Fratelli Maggiore issue, right, the older brothers, this is, this is um, ex especially uh, clear because in the history of Jewish-Christian relations, the question who is the older brother is one of the most sensitive, difficult, tormenting questions uh, since both Jews and Christians wanted to be Jacob, right, the younger brother. Nobody agreed to be Esau. Nobody wants to be Esau. This is why the book is called Jacob's Younger Brother. And John Paul II somehow says um, to his Jewish counterparts, you are the older brothers, which if it was not in this context of the synagogue, um, of the visit, this historic visit of a pope to uh, a synagogue, which was definitely a very friendly gesture. Um, so the content of this uh, saying could be actually quite offensive, but it wasn't because of somehow the context in which um, this saying was done. So I think this is the way um, um, that John Paul II took very sophisticated, uh, sophisticatedly on purpose to promote Jewish-Christian dialogue, which was definitely very important for him, but to do it in a way that would not threaten um, the Christian tradition, the Catholic tradition, in a too strong uh, way. I found this an absolutely fascinating argument that did make a lot more things make sense. Um, <laughs> so thank you for explaining it to us. Um, but kind of thinking about the other side of it, right? Because it's one thing for the people in charge to kind of have these strategies and make these gestures. Um, but a lot of 
sort of how that gets read and what impact that has um, has to do with the audience and the people receiving those messages and sort of how they choose to interpret them. So can you help us understand why both Catholic communities and um, Jewish communities were essentially okay with this, right? Accepting enough of high-level dialogue between the two religions, but also being okay with stuff being off the table. Um, Can you help us understand kind of the audience reactions? Yes, uh, yes, of course. Um, So, yeah, I'm wondering where where to start with that, because this actually works out very well um, in many, many contexts. So I would start perhaps with a Jewish context. Um, since there is there are uh, asymmetries between Judaism and Christianity, for example, theological uh, questions, or at least the way we see theological questions in the Christian world, are something that is somewhat foreign um, to, uh, to Jews, whether they are observant or non-observant, right? So for secular Jews, of course, theology is foreign, and having a Pope putting a, a, a note in the Western wall uh, is something that can activate their imagination uh, much better than, um, than, you know, interpreting Romans 11. Nobody uh, in the secular Jewish world, nobody uh, uh, read probably uh, Romans 11 uh, ever, it's especially in Israel. I don't know, perhaps the situation is a bit different in other places, but there is no a, a very... A, a, a strong acquaintance with a New Testament text, for example, and with uh, theological issues. So this made sense in terms of uh, seeing on the ground, so to say, the change. Uh, the Pope is speaking with the chief rabbinate of Israel. This is something that everybody can sympathize, everybody can understand that he's now uh, responding to a Jewish sensibility. So that is a, a, a something that spoke to the general audience uh, very well. I think in terms of the Orthodox sensibilities, um, it was easier because it is much less threatening than really going into the hardcore of halachic questions, of theological questions, which then may threat uh, to break some kind of a continuity in the Jewish tradition or uh, the Jewish identity. I'll give you an example uh, uh, for that. So, um, in the Middle Ages, uh, um, and this is something that is very uh, prominent in Jewish collective memory, so to say, or at least in the traditional uh, in, in traditional communities, um, Jews were very often willing to give their lives in order not to convert uh, to Christianity. Right? This is something that was very um, very strong. This demand that whatever you do, you don't baptize. That's you. You you're supposed to give your life and not baptize. And this was definitely an ethos within the Jewish tradition, uh, with a lot of very painful memories. So, if one now changes because of Jewish-Christian relations, for example, one changes the uh, uh, the position of Christianity from a position of idolatry to a position of a covenantal community, right? A parallel covenantal community, for example. This would mean that all those uh, those martyrs in the Middle Ages simply died for nothing. So how could this be? If it's either Christianity is idolatry, and then it is a, a, it, it is acceptable that you die in order not to convert, 
or it is not. And then this really blurs the boundaries between the uh, religious communities. So these are difficult questions. And it is much easier to befriend with Christians without starting to ask whether, what exactly is their halachic uh, status? Uh, because once you, you go into, on that path, things become extremely complicated, and the prices are always high. So in, in this way, what John Paul II does in the Catholic world, I think, is also very acceptable uh, within uh, Jewish communities to simply put the hardcore uh, issues between the traditions uh, to the side and befriend um, on, on the symbolic, the diplomatic uh, realm. Uh, this is easier. Of course, this means that um, the tradition remains active and full of difficulties uh, which are not uh, tackled. So I'd like to sort of speak about some of those difficulties, I suppose, um, or kind of where the points of disagreement remain. You've mapped out a lot of kind of what's not been addressed or dealt with. Um, but I'm wondering how we can kind of understand the conversation so far and bring in um, an additional piece that's discussed in the book, which is the increase in anti-Christian rhetoric in contemporary Orthodox Judaism. Um, how can we kind of understand that within this conversation? Yes, I, I assume that this is the most sensitive uh, part of the, uh, of the book, and, and I would like to, to somehow divide my, my answer to two parts. One is to, to talk more generally about the transformations that current political and cultural uh, uh, changes in cause or raise within the Jewish tradition. And the second, uh, the second part of the answer will, will refer to a very specific a group, an Israeli group, a, a Zionist religious uh, group within uh, the very broad scope of uh, Orthodox Judaism. So, first of all, it is interesting to uh, to note that the Jewish traditions which um, which pronounce tolerance or relative tolerance towards uh, Christianity um, are very often uh, produced in times and in historical contexts in which there is a very strong Christian pressure on Jews. Uh, for example, there is the context of Catholic censorship, so early modern censorship of Jewish rabbinic uh, texts. Um, and there is that Christian sensibilities are often at odds with all kinds of um, aspects in rabbinic literature, which could be interpreted um, as hostile towards uh, Christianity. Uh, there are, of course, the Talmudic excerpts uh, within uh, Judaism. Uh, Christianity is not mentioned a lot in the Talmud, but when it is mentioned, it is sometimes um, um, very negative. So the notions are very negative. And so the Jews um, uh, very often um, uh, collaborate with the Christian censor in cleansing their traditions from hostility towards uh, Christianity. And as scholars show us, historians of early modern in rabbinic literature often show um, it is not always only to appease the censor, but somehow these, this majority, the majority culture's sensibilities are really integrated into Jewish self-perceptions and a, a kind of a, 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 an evolution of tolerance to, towards Christianity appears. But this would mean that the power structure and the fact that Jews are a minority that is very much dependent on um, their, uh, uh, their Christian counterparts 
in the in a in a in, in a society in which Christianity is not only the religion, the, the, the public's majority religion, but is also the, the Christian rule is often, right, this is the rule under, uh, the Christendom rule under which the Jews are living. And halakha, the halakha is very sensitive to these historical consequences. So often we see in the halakhic discussions which pronounce tolerance towards Christianity, um, the context in which um, the Jews are supposed to remember that uh, the, their benefactors are Christians and they should be thankful to them. So as a minority, they have to be grateful to the Christian um, majority and to the Christian uh, rulers, etc. But what happens um, um, in the current situation where Jews enjoy religious freedom and rights which they never had the opportunity to enjoy before, and also in the Middle East, of course, there is also the context of a Jewish state where the Jews are the majority and, the, and Judaism is the majority's religion. So how then those halakhic um, rulings that pronounce tolerance towards Christianity but are very deeply dependent on Jewish in political inferiority, how can they be used and applied in a political environment which is extremely different. So this requires a lot of very delicate halakhic and theological work. Some rabbis do this heavy lifting, others don't. So there is something that is perhaps even natural, I would say, and saying that it's natural doesn't mean that it's not potentially very dangerous at times, but there is perhaps something natural in the fact that once the Christian pressure that accompanied um, Judaism and the production of Jewish literature throughout the ages uh, is now uh, weakening very strongly, that this would mean that also those antagonistic parts, swaths in the Jewish tradition can pop up and come back to the surface. So this is one um, aspect, I think, of, the, uh, of, of, of answering your question, how, how can we understand this increase in anti-Christian rhetoric, um, is it simply... Um, the discourse is much more open than it used to be. It's much less apologetic. And these freedoms also bring out the difficult and, and the antagonistic and the hostile parts of Judaism back into life. So that's one part. Um, but I think there is something more. And this is something that appears uh, precisely in this group, this group that in Hebrew it is called the, uh, the Chardalim. Uh, so these are the disciples of a, sp a specific religious Zionist rabbi, Rabbi Cook. Um, and interestingly, most of this group comes from uh, French or from uh, French-speaking um, countries, and, and, and they are uh, acquainted also with the, with the Catholic um, discourse, the Catholic pro-Jewish discourse after the Holocaust. And, and, what, uh, and what this group often claims, a group which really produces a lot of theological works on Christianity, is that the return of so many Jews to the land of their fathers, to the land of the Bible, um, and also the establishment of the state of Israel, is actually a refutation <clears throat> of classical anti-Jewish um, Catholic a, a, a criticisms of Judaism or of the Catholic approach to Jews and Judaism, the, the classical and the traditional approach, which saw the 
exile or the diaspora of the Jews, the, the loss of independence and the destruction of the temple, first and foremost, as some kind of evidence that it is the spiritualized um, under Christian understanding of the Old Testament that is actually the true interpretation of the Bible. So, and this really goes back to, um, to a tradition of reading the Pauline epist- epistles as dividing between um, a flesh and spirit, um, when, when the Jews are, of course, the carnal, uh, the carnal people and the church, the spiritual people um, of God. And so many Jews would say that now this, this carnal return to the land of Israel, to the land of the Bible, and the reestablishment of independence is actually a refutation of the Christian argument. So the new political environment is taken, so to say, into the classical polemic between Jews and Christians, which was always very much a political theological polemic about who's, uh, who's in power, who's weakened, who resides under whom, and what this has to do with the true interpretation, the right interpretation of the Old Testament. Mm, thank you for taking us through um, those two parts and helping us better understand kind of how the theology and the political context sort of all go together um, very much today. Um, and that's kind of where I want to stay for a moment. Um you speak about in the book the kind of official relationship, I suppose, between the chief rabbinate of Israel and the Vatican itself and whoever the Pope might be at a particular time. Um, and I was really interested, this kind of picks up a little bit on something you mentioned earlier, the idea that um, the Catholic Church, the Vatican, is very sort of invested in this official dialogue, this formal relationship, um, but that the chief rabbinate of Israel is somewhat less enthusiastic or kind of sees it differently. So I was wondering if you could kind of help us understand these two different, I guess, levels of enthusiasm for the idea um, and what we can know about what these interactions are actually like in this particular dialogue. Yes, um, happily. So, um, right, so the question of enthusiasm is actually a a larger, a broader question um, with regards to, right, the enthusiasm of Jews to participate in in, in Jewish-Christian dialogue and the different motivations that each community bring to this uh, dialogue. So perhaps it's it's worth uh, starting with two Jewish uh, reservations with regards to, to dialogue. Um, first, uh, first of all, it is clear that right, the, the Catholic move towards reconciliation um, emerges after the Holocaust. Um, and in, 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 in the context of Christianity um, rejecting anti-Semitism and wanting to separate itself from anti-Semitism. So that's a motivation. It's a motivation that has to be that has to do with the catastrophe. Um, and also with the idea that Christianity does not want to be on the side of the perpetrator. That's very clear. Jews in the Holocaust were not on the side of the perpetrator in any way. So, of course, there is a huge discussion whether we should refer to Christians as perpetrators, as bystanders, as those who, who, who saved Jews. So it's not clear, right? There is a lot of uh, debate on that, and it really depends on who, who you're asking exactly. But that's the context in which reconciliation on the Catholic side appears. So Jews do not share this motivation. 
they don't have the burden of showing that they're tolerant after this kind of, of atrocity or disaster. Um, which makes it, 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 and unfortunately, disasters sometimes move things uh, forward in history, as we know. So um, the, 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 the calamity or the catastrophe, the Holocaust brought about a very different um, or very different changes within the Jewish religion that don't necessarily have to do with interfaith uh, dialogue. So that, that's one thing. It's the, the historical context, even though there is one historical context in which both Jews and Christians and found themselves in the middle of the 20th century, the lessons of this uh, calamity were uh, differently interpreted by, uh, by, by each of the communities. So that would, be, um, that would be one thing. The other question, and this is a question that is also seen in some of the sources that I examine, is whether this initiative of Jewish-Christian reconciliation or dialogue is not, in fact, some kind of... Isn't there a missionary tendency behind that? So why is the Christian community so enthusiastic about befriending the Jewish people? Perhaps there is a hidden agenda there. So many rabbis uh, uh, fear to engage uh, with uh, uh, Christian counterparts in dialogue because of this... Um, uh, this assumption that maybe behind the scenes something else, another agenda is actually uh, going on. Um, and in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the initiative of John Paul II to establish a collaboration precisely with the chief rabbinate uh, of Israel, um, perhaps um, we should keep in mind that for John Paul II as well, this was, this was really a highlight, a very uh, important symbolic gesture. But the role of the chief rabbinate um, in Israel is, um, it, it's hard to say that it's really a role of religious, religious orthodox leadership. In certain senses it is, but it's also a formal, it's the formal uh, arm of the state in terms of religion, but it doesn't mean that those rabbis are necessarily the rabbis that uh, Orthodox communities would see as their spiritual leaders. That's not exactly the case. So it has a symbolic, um, um, a symbolic role also in the uh, religious scope of the state of Israel, and not necessarily uh, always much more than that. So, um, so, so John Paul II uh, recognized them symbolically as some kind of a counterpart of spiritual leadership to that of the Vatican, in a way, and invites them to join um, a dialogue. And it's important, perhaps, to know that you know the chief rabbinate is not even engaging in dialogue with liberal. Jewish communities, such as Reform and conservative communities. So Christianity was really beyond the scope, <laughs> so to say, of the, uh, of the chief rabbinate. Nevertheless, they understand the symbolic significance of this uh, gesture, and they, um, and they decide to, uh, uh, to agree to that. And so there is this bilateral uh, uh, commission of representatives from the rabbinate and from the Vatican that uh, are meeting both in Rome and in Jerusalem. But interestingly, because of the, the, the strange and somewhat embarrassment that, uh, that is uh, entailed in these, in these gatherings, the choice is always to, 
to discuss common interests and not to go again, not to go deeply into the sensitive, intimate difficulties that divide the communities or divided the tradition throughout the ages. So we have, for example, a declaration on the values of the family. Uh, Sometimes, of course, there is the the danger of secularism and secularization is often a common denominator that brings Jews and Christians together. So there is this tendency to avoid the heavy lifting of really looking into the Jewish tradition and its own problems uh, with Christianity. And this is very clear in these meetings with with the chief rabbinate. I would also add that the texts that these um, these committees are producing, it is very uh, rare to find these texts in Hebrew translation, which means that this is not really something that is on, at the heart of the chief rabbinate's agenda in terms of educating uh, the Jews on how to relate to Christianity, for example. Hmm. And this very much goes back to um, what you mentioned at the beginning, one of the motivations for the project, the idea of kind of having a particular set of lenses coming from one community looking at the other. And I think as has been shown through the discussion and very much as apparent in the book, that's something that's true on both sides. There's a lot of debate within Catholicism about how to look at the Jews. There's a lot of debate within Judaism about how to look at the Catholics. And the actual conversation between the two sides is very tentative and very symbolic and doesn't get into the same sort of depth. Um, And there's a lot of reasons that you've helpfully explained for us for this. Um, But what impact do you think it has on Christian Jewish relations that there are kind of these strong symbolic lenses um, that are still very much part of how each community views the other? Right. Uh, so, so before heading directly to uh, answering your your question, I would just say that indeed, when we, when we talk about the place of Judaism, Jews and Judaism in Christianity, so we, we all know that uh, even at times where there was a very small Jewish community or no Jewish community at all, Christianity is somehow bound to speak, to think about Jews and Judaism, since these are also theological categories within Christianity. And so there is this construction, rhetorical construction or intellectual, a denkfigur, as we would say in German, right, that they are a figure of thought, the Jews, within Christianity. And this is not always what we think about Jewish approaches to Christianity. Very often there is a certain division or the asymmetry between the the communities has to do with the fact that Christianity needs to think with and about Judaism, while Jews actually don't really need to think with and about Christianity. So I differ. Um, uh, My argument is is different in this book, and I think that Christianity is also an internalized category within the Jewish tradition, And it's an internalized political theological category. It's not only theological. It always has to do with the fact that Christianity is remembered as the main oppressor of the Jews and the main competition to the Jewish interpretation of uh, the Bible. So this is why even if, you know, the, 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 the internal discourse on Christianity within Judaism is not as prominent and as evolved as the, 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 uh, the mirror Christian discourse on Judaism, Christianity still plays a very significant part in the evolution of, uh, of the Jewish tradition. 
Um, and that's a central argument uh, uh, for this book. Um, so what does it do exactly? Um, I think what it does is, first of all, um, to sober us a little bit or our perceptions with regards to the possibility to to cleanse Jewish-Christian relations entirely from projections, right? This idea that they can simply meet, meet each other as... Um, as people leaving behind all these prejudices, or so it it, def- it, de- it depends how we how we define prejudices. But in terms of bringing the specific meta narrative and the specific internalized category that one tradition has for the other, I don't think this is a, a possible to to overcome in Jewish Christian relations, not at all. So. Um, that that would be one uh, important implication of this uh, uh, of this of these very central projections in both communities. It can be good projections and it can be bad projections. So today we see that if if you know if in history um, when Martin Luther attacks the Catholic Church, he uses the Pauline uh, um, polemic with the Pharisees to do that. So today the competition between different Christian denominations would be not on who's who's more anti-Jewish and therefore more Christian, but who's less anti-Jewish and therefore more Christian. But this, the function is still um, very much a, a, a theological category uh, within a, a Christian discourse and not something, not meeting really on the ground. And, and as I mentioned, this is also true, I think, for, uh, for Jewish communities. But um, but being you know going just a step further, I would say that perhaps you know projections are there to stay, and we should just somehow befriend these projections and attempt making them as um, as friendly as possible and uh, as less costly as possible. That would be I don't know a mildly optimistic uh, conclusion that I can uh, think about. <laughs> Well, thank you for finding something optimistic to end on. Um, And that really just leaves me uh, to ask, is there anything about your current or upcoming work that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Uh, Yes. So recently, uh, since I I spent now a few uh, years in Germany, I served as the chair of Jewish Christian relations at the faculty, at the Protestant Faculty of Theology at the Humboldt University of Berlin. Um, And there I, I sensed, how uh, how charged the current discourse on what exactly uh, does anti-Semitism mean? Not only in Germany, it's it's really a, a global question. It's a, a question that somehow accompanies the rise of anti-Semitism. Is also the rise of the discourse. What does anti-Semitism exactly mean? So in Germany, of course, more than any other place, nobody wants to be an anti-Semite, but it is not clear exactly what the category actually um, contains. And so I'm trying to follow this this discourse and and more particularly to understand what is the role of Christianity in terms of the theological tradition of Christianity, but also what is the role that um, Christian protagonists play in this discourse on the definition what does anti-Semitism mean exactly? So what is the religious component of this discourse, which often seems a very secularized, um, political even, discourse that has little to do with the the history of the Jewish-Christian polemic and of Christian approaches to Judaism. So this is more or less where I stand now. 
Wow. Well, that's very interesting. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And for listeners who have been intrigued by the conversation and want to know more, again, the book we've been discussing is titled Jacob's Younger Brother, Christian Jewish Relations After Vatican II, out from Harvard University Press in 2022. Karma, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much again for the invitation and for this very lovely and vibrant conversation. I'm very happy.